This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. Skylar Watkins, thanks for making the trip to Montana from Texas to talk to me about your burgeoning nonprofit and any other topics that happen to emerge. <laughs> well, I appreciate you letting me come out. Um, yeah, so we've been, you got, it's, it's Saturday, you got here on, a, uh, last night, and, uh, so we've gotten to spend 12 hours together, 15 hours together, I got to know a little bit about you, you got a lot of irons and a lot of fires, you do a lot of things, and most recently you have started a non-profit to, that's focused on increasing access for hunters, right? Correct. Okay. So why don't we start out with you telling us a little bit about your background prior to that or, or contemporaneous with that. Yeah. You've got a so, lot of things you do that you do. Yeah. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't great at school or I should say didn't like school that much. Um, and, and I wanted to be in the hunting industry in some form or fashion. And so about the age of 14, I started helping out with guiding stuff, whether it was skinning pigs for clients or, um, you know, driving people to blinds or whatever, and just kind of worked my way up through that process, did a bunch of stuff in the outdoor industry, and then eventually started an outfitting business and um, kind of fell in love with the idea that I could get paid to take people hunting, you know, that people would pay us to go hunting and you can make a good living uh, doing that. And over the years of, of learning a little bit more about conservation or getting involved in conservation and then seeing that um, there was a whole different world outside of Texas for how hunting was done and that there was actually this thing called public land that people could access and you didn't have to pay tons of money to go to. Um, I, I kind of took a deep dive into that and then realized... Um, you know, after listening to the Hunt Quietly podcast and some other stuff, that um, there was definitely a need for more acres per outdoorsman in the United States. So when you started to get involved in conservation stuff, what were you doing there? Um, absolutely nothing as far as a um, physical involvement standpoint. It was more of, you know... Listening to other podcasts, um, listening to Steve or Clay Newcomb bring up these characters and talk about what they did, um, you know, listening about Teddy Roosevelt and then taking a deep dive, I would get super, you know, hyper focused on these people and then just read everything I could about gotcha. these people. Yeah, and and it started to make sense to me in a way that that was something that I was really passionate about that I didn't know that I was passionate about. You know, I, I started seeing that. Um, that's the that's the part of hunting that I was actually more connected to, but my whole life the only part of hunting that I understood was from a job standpoint. You know, mm -hmm. and so um, well, you it sounds like you had three stages to your development as a hunter. You started out like me, I gather, where you weren't thinking about anything but hunting. No, no, when you're a little a, kid, you know, you that's like the purest stage in my mind is that stage where it's like, we're going to go trap us a freaking muskrat and shoot us a squirrel. Yeah. And we're going to, then we're going to eat them both, you know? 
And uh, then you you got in. You ended up making your living off of it for a while and still do. And then I didn't do that part, but I did the part, the, the third stage in the elevator. What, what is your third stage in the evolution is my second, where you stop taking it for granted. Right. And it's an important step, but it, it's, an, and it's a necessary step, but it, it's an unfortunate that you have to. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because then you got to start freaking worrying about the future of it. <laughs> yeah. Instead of just doing it. Well, I think it's one of those things that possibly, and possibly through something like this, we can microdose that over our entire hunting career as opposed to most of us just, you know, getting it all in full force at the very end or whatever it is. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, microdose like, the concern? Yeah, like maybe... Maybe people should know at an early age, at a beginning stage. Maybe we don't do a good enough job at a beginning stage of hunters to let them know this This is also important. I'm glad you're having fun. This is also important. Yeah. And I imagine that's a, I imagine that's a, a matter of upbringing. I bet there are kids that if their parents instilled in them, at, instill a conservation ethic in them at an early age, that they probably always do have some level of yeah, concern. Yeah. Being a computer guy, I can see... Uh, right now, even with the social media push and everything that's going on right now, there's a lot of, we have a lot of new hunters right now. Mm-hmm. And the push for this conservation effort is is so strong right now that I'm sure there's a whole new generation of people that are coming up with my stage three being their stage one. You know, right, right. right. That's what they've learned from the get-go. Yeah. You know, and so um, maybe it is, maybe it'll make them, a lot better hunter than, than I've been in my life, or at least a lot more. I don't, I would a better stoop, better yeah, stewards. Stewards, you know. Yeah. I, mean, I don't want to say respectful because I've always respected it, but yeah. but um, at least more conservation thoughtful, you know, mm-hmm. uh, about what they're doing. Yeah. Um, to be honest, when I first started out, man, we had uh, my dad's mom, my granny, who I was super close to. She had three and a half acres on the Savannah River in Utopia, Texas. And it was like the perfect spot, right? If you got on, if you got on one of the 500 mapping systems that we had today, and went, "Where's the best pinch point in this area to sit?" That was her three okay. acres, you know. So that was it. And uh, I had a tree, an old, an old oak tree that me and Dad hung a couple two by fours up in, and uh, close enough to the house that if Granny got up and started doing something in the kitchen in the morning, I could hear her from my tree. You know, I could smell the bacon <laughs> she was cooking. And uh, deer would walk right down Onion Creek to the to the point of Onion Creek in the Sabinal River, and it would present me a 20, 25-yard shot, and I just, man, would stack them up like quick. It didn't matter what it was, a deer, a pig, a, didn't matter, you know. And, and, and all manner of other critter, too, right? Yeah, yeah, we had axis and black buck and some mouflon and, and had some bison come through one time. It's just <clears throat> welcome to Texas kind of deal yeah. there, you know, but... Um, yeah, so that's, that's where it started for me. And then I, I did, I was able in my guiding career to meet some cool people like Brooks Johnson, who, uh, was him and Keith Beam were the founders of Double Bull Blinds, the original pop-up blinds, um, which has now been sold to Primos. But, um, Brooks took me under his wing and had me involved in, in helping film some of their shows, but also in like a, he's a great businessman. So he mentored me in business and, and saw that I was passionate about making hunting my, form of, of, you know, 
your livelihood of, of, of financial gain. And uh, we had a little company going there, and he took me around to the ATA show and introduced me to everybody I could have ever wanted to meet when I was a kid, from Jim Shockey to the Duck Dynasty guys. I all you know, I got to meet all these people that I'd always thought. Those guys were my heroes, you know. What's ATA? Uh, the Archery Trade Association. Oh. And so it's like every new, every existing product and every new product that's going to come out for that year that your retail stores want to go and see if they want to bring to their shop, they're all there. And then every big name in the hunting industry that you see on TV is also there. Yeah. Um, and so doing their own self-promotion or promoting for companies or whatever it is. Um, this sounds like... Uh Matt Ranella's worst nightmare. Yeah, it is. And and but I tell you what else it does too. It it um it you've you've heard the uh you've heard the phrase you never want to actually meet your hero. Like <laughs> Yeah. That's what yeah. it turns into is that you see ah, those, that guy might not be as cool yeah. as he looks on TV, right. you know? Yeah. So but uh no, but I, I'm I'm super excited to be in this third stage because it um I've gained more fulfillment out of this stage and met cooler people out of this stage that have no name in the hunting industry than than I ever thought. It's like it's like turning to the end of the book and finding out the ending is completely different and it's a lot better than you expected it to go. Yeah. Well, and as a precondition for you staying here last night, I instituted a gag order on you. you? <laughs> and I've not looked into it at all. So... Um, I'm pretty well positioned to interview you about your nonprofit. What's it called? For Progeny. For Progeny, because like the listeners, most listeners, probably six of the eight listeners, uh, don't won't know anything about it. No, like me. Not a clue. So, but you also do others. You also have another business enterprise, at least one that you also own a jerky company yeah i'm a partner in a beef jerky company and uh so we brought some of that down and then um hopefully that will take off in my i'll, I'll be able to back myself on some conservation efforts that, that i'm trying to do if nobody else wants to participate you know what i mean so i've kind of made this for progeny um i don't know it's, it's the hill i'm gonna die on in, in this industry and so that, that's that's where your passion yeah lies. that's that's yeah. what i'm going to do um, what's the jerky company Dude Jerky. Dude Jerky, yep. right. And you were kind enough to bring me like eight or ten packs. And I'm going hunting with my brother for a week next next week. So yeah, that's a, a, highly appreciated. Everybody in the company is a hunter. And that was one of the things we said when we started. was like, dude, this would be perfect backcountry snack to put in your pack and take out there and eat. You know, Dude, this is perfect. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. how you came up with the name. Exactly. Yeah, the name actually was uh, in my buddy's house when he was first starting to make it. A kid came in, and, and a, a little kid from down there's a neighbor boy, you know, and he was like, dude, you're making jerky? <laughs> and he was like, that's it, dude, jerky, that's the name. <laughs> okay, so tell me, yeah, tell me about Four Progeny. So it started, um, and you kind of entered intertwined into the story also because it started as a literal dream that I had. I called uh, Jancy, the guy that made you the fishing lure that we brought. Um, I called him. I called my wife first and told her, I got to tell you this dream I had because if I don't, I'll forget it, right? I, How long ago is, is this? A year. Okay. A year ago. And uh, 
<clears throat> I, I'm just getting into this, this conservation stuff. I'm just getting into um, that there's such thing as public land, you know, and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And um, You went on a hunting trip in Colorado on public land at one point? Yeah, uh, not this past elk season, but the one before. Okay. Right? And it was... Eye-opening. Very eye-opening. Very eye-opening. We got into situations up there that I thought, this could turn into fisticuffs, you know what I mean? Like, there's situations up there where you think, guys would fight over this. Um, oh, one second. I'm just grabbing a pen and pencil. Um, sometimes some stuff comes up in conversation that, and then we move on, but it's interesting, and I want to go back and ask about it, so I just yeah. need to keep note. So... <laughs> Yeah, so you this was a rifle hunt? Yeah, it was third season. Um, third season elk hunt. And we were in the Route National Forest. Um, we were we were staying um, outside of a place called Hans Peak. And um, in saying that, uh, we didn't really... I had one buddy went with me that's my partner in the jerky company, and he had been on an elk hunt before in Wyoming. Uh, Our other buddy, Josh, that went with us, he had not been on elk hunt, and I had not been on elk hunt. And so we weren't, like, super equipped to go stay in the mountains. Mm -hmm. We didn't didn't know enough about that yet. You car camped. Yeah. Oh, well, we had a – they – right at the base of the mountain down there, they had, like, some old cabins from the 1800s. And you could rent a cabin, and it just so happened that they had one available for rent when we were out there, so we just rented this little cabin at the base of the hill. From the uh, Forest Service or from... No, from an actual individual, private okay. landowner. Um, but yeah, we, we we discovered that just because a road is on your mapping system doesn't mean you're allowed to drive down it. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And we had all these spots picked out that we thought we were going to go to and realized you can't even get to those unless you want to hike 10 miles, you know. Um, we got some info from uh, a little gal in town that she was a, a high school girl that her mom had a cafe that was open on Thursday nights only. And she also doubled as packing in hot meals to the outfitters in the back country. And she was your waitress. She was our waitress for the night. And she told us that, uh, we actually joked about it. We're like, Hey, we'll give you a hundred bucks if you tell us where the elk are, you know? Mm-hmm. And she was like, well, I can tell you where the elk are if you can figure out how to get to them. So she does on the map. She's like, but it was cool, you know. She's like, the outfitters all hunt over here. And this is where I take all the mills. I'm like, well, that must be where the elk are, you know. So we tried to drive up there to get to those. The outfitters had, like, your truck and trailer out here, you know, horse trailer and truck. And and you know how it is. You're not allowed to take your ATV or UTV off the actual given trails or paths. Mm-hmm. So the outfitters take their trucks and trailers and they block off a giant square around that path so that there's no way for you to legally get down the path. So they've shut you out. Of, of going in there and then, you know. Wait a minute. They blocked the road? Yeah, so there's a parking lot that you can park in. They, but that, how is that not illegal? We asked about it and it was kind of a, uh, they're in the parking lot and if you want to go down there and confront them about it, you can, but you need to understand these people live here and this is their livelihood kind of thing, you know. So it was, for us, it was like, Two guys from Texas and one guy from Louisiana. We're not going to go down there and fight a bunch oh, of outfitters. Get, okay, but how much? Had they not done that, how much further could you get by by via vehicle? We could have gone all the way, we all the way to their camp. Yeah. We well, then why are they using horses and stuff? Why don't they just drive to their camp? <laughs> yeah, though they have. Well, we had a, a UTV, right? So we could have got all the way down there on on the UTV. You know, it, it splits off once you get down there a little bit on the map. 
I don't think they would be able to get those trucks and trailers down there to where they're camping. I'm sure it would have been a hairy situation to try to turn around anywhere down there. Okay. Um, but a UTV, you know, you can back it up, a little Austin Powers maneuver, and, and get back out. But um, So we looked at that, and it was going to be a 13-mile hike down there. Plus, you've got, I don't know how many guys would have been down there already hunting, so it just... Yeah. You know, just crap luck trying to do anything. So, But I had, with my outfitting knowledge from hunting axis deer, I just got on the map and started putting points where I thought good pinch points coming up mountains and stuff were out there. Lo and behold, we went to one of my points, and there's a whole herd of elk up at the top at 10,200 feet when everybody in town was telling us all the snow came in because it's a blizzard. And they're like, they'll be pushed down to 6,500 I'm like, man, we marched around 6,500 for days without seeing anything. So we went to this one, and I'm sitting there and glassing, and I'm like, well, that's a weird-looking rock. And then the rock moved, and I'm like, gosh, we found elk. <laughs> and these were the first elk you'd seen on the trip? Yeah, yeah, on, on public land. Uh, how much snow were they in? A bunch. It, the first two days we were there, it didn't snow at all, maybe like a couple of flurries. Uh, the third day we woke up and I have a, uh, uh, a cover on the bed of my truck and the snow was over the, the roof of my truck. So I'm, you're talking feet from there to there, you know, it was just, it was ridiculous the amount. And then you saw these elk way, way higher up the mountain yeah. after that? After the snow, they're laying at 10,200 feet up there laying in the snow. And, uh, so. You must have gotten freaked out. The amount of traffic that was in there, I'm sure they yeah. were just like, get to the point that nobody else is going to go yeah. to, you know. And um, I was not in the shape to go. It was There's only one way there, all the way down into the ravine, all the way back up. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't Cam Haynes would have broke a sweat. Cam Haynes, probably not. But, he, <laughs> but you know, he would have done it. Um, but Josh, my buddy, he's, I don't know, 6'3", long, lanky guy, you know, and he's like, I'll do it. I'm like, well, I had I had my uh, 300 Weatherby sighted in and all my dopage on the thing, and I was like, well, take my gun, man, you know, because just hit him with the rangefinder and look right there, and it'll tell you what crosshair to put on it, you know. So he got up there, and at 404 yards, you see the elk drop, and then hear the boom, and, and there he's got him, man. He well, got, and then if you didn't have to go up there before, now you do. Yeah, you yeah, everybody's screwed, you know what I mean. But he, he, he uh, Josh did pretty much all of the work by itself. He was a machine that day, you know, uh-huh. and, and from packing to everything. But long story short, it was a cool experience being able to see the vastness of that country and knowing that like, hey, I've got ownership in this. I'm allowed to come out here yeah. and do this. You know? But you started out by saying that there were some dudes fronting on you. On the... I thought there were some dudes mad-dogging you or something. You said... I. Something you said made me believe like you got into some kind of confrontation. No, it was the um, just just with those outfitter guys, just with talking okay. with the game warden and stuff like that. You know that the spot we wanted to go to, it was like okay, no, you you, you just felt like there. there was some hostility in the air. Yeah, I'm a hundred percent sure if we would have gone marching down that trail, we would have been met with unhappy. Yeah, people. You gotcha. Know, uh, because those clients were paying to be down there, yeah. and we weren't paying anybody anything. But, um, anyways, it 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 really struck me as, man, I want to get into. Where else can we do this at? You mm-hmm. know, um, because Texas is very limited on 
public hunting land. We have 172 million acres in the state of Texas, and we have about 1.5 million that is quote-unquote public hunting or public access. Mm -hmm. But of those, the majority of that, other than like the Davy Crockett National Forest and stuff like that where it's shoulder-to-shoulder Orange Army, the majority of our hunts are on uh, WMAs, and you have to draw. And in the state of Texas, and anybody can do this, you can go to the TPWD Draw Hunts website and look and see how many people applied and how many people got drawn, and you can divide it and do the math yourself. The majority of our hunts are less than 1% draw odds. Okay. And so, you know, it's just you're basically donating your $3 to do it. Um, I can tell you that Jancy and I, for the past like eight years, have put in for... Jancy's your, he, you, a very close, lifelong friend. Yeah, he's, and... he's my right-hand man in our outfit and business and just one of my best buds for going and traveling and doing, you know, excursions of whatever kind. Um, but we've put in for 25 different hunts eight years in a row, and this year we drew one. This is our this first all time. in Texas. Yeah, and this yeah. is our first time to ever draw anything. Um, and so, you know, whatever the math is on that, 200 times we've put in and got drawn for one hunt out of 200 yeah. uh, in an eight-year period. And so, Very you know, competitive. It's, yeah, it's, it's competitive and it's and it's rough. But if you get in, it's 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 awesome. You know, you, you get to watch other people all year long post up their stuff about what they did and you're just jealous that you can't get in there. You yeah. Um, so that, that kind of dove me into conservation. And then I... Uh, and in the conservation realm, I got in with some some other guys. Um, I'm not going to say we're friends or anything, but uh, I had a little podcast of my own. And these these people, um, I had started a little deal called The Wild You. And it was basically just content creation about how-to stuff that we knew how to do. Um, and then it was basically an open format, an open platform for... Hey, you know, Matt, if you've got really good knowledge on this, write in and share your knowledge with us on on that. And Susie might have knowledge on this, you know. And so we were just a group effort to to give some knowledge to help each other out. And um, and I met some cool people along the way doing that, and started finding out about movements such as the R three, and and that's where I learned about the Pittman Robertson Act and and Dingle Johnson Act, and how this money was funding these public lands and and what they were doing with our money that might not be going towards the betterment of the public lands Mm -hmm. and got involved with that and then i read an article called the case against hunter recruitment and so uh like i've said before i had no idea who you were didn't even know that you and steve were brothers and just thought that that was an article that meat eater had posted you know from somebody and read it and uh i thought at first i was like well, this guy's pretty harsh in his words, but but at least it's to the point. At least somebody can understand what you were saying, you know. Which is, I get, I get good marks for clarity. Yeah, so I mean, which is which is super cool because most of this stuff is like you feel like it's constantly trying to trick you into believing something else. You know what I mean? Like there's more to it that they're not telling you. Yeah. And for this, at least it was like... With a lot of hunting media there is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because I've played in that game before and I know that you're taking a picture at a weird angle and your 125-inch buck looks like a 160. You know what I mean? So like, I've been All, tricked before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And you name it, it it's been fabricated. It, it, but yeah, so it's like, I don't know. I think of myself, I've only written two... Popular press articles in my whole life. 
And but I read a lot of academic articles, but I feel like my two popular press articles were refreshing in their candidness. Yeah, and that's that's exactly. I mean, how they I felt they were it. inciting as shit as it turns out. They pissed people off, but they were just my honest take. Right. Like I didn't have to like worry about who was gonna pull their funding from me because I don't get funding from anybody. I didn't have to worry about who I was going to tick off in any way, shape, or form. Those two articles are just bare bones, my thoughts on that stuff. So, But anyway, it's yeah, not about so me. That, this that's, ain't about me. This is about four projects. Well, that's what I appreciated about it and, it, and it got me to... It got me to actually look at what is R3, right? Because you just hear the, the term thrown out there. Mm-hmm. And very rarely... It's like the Pittman-Robertson Act. That has got more press in the past year than it's ever got in, since its existence, you know, or, or since it's whatever, since they introduced Inception. it. Inception. Yeah, and and now everybody's talking about it, and 80% of the people have no clue what it is, what it means, how it gets funded, the whole nine yards, you know. And so I, I felt if I'm going to write anything about this or say anything about this, I need to know what it's about, right? If not, I'm as bad as anybody else that's just talking out of their butt about it, right? So mm-hmm. I uh, took a dive into that, and I was... Into PR or the R3? All movement? of them. All of that stuff. <laughs> and uh, and when I got to the R3 portion of it, I was like, okay, the, you know... Here, here they're wanting us to recruit more people and, and retain more people, all this stuff, and I'm thinking... Okay, doesn't doesn't sound too bad, right? It doesn't doesn't sound like it's too bad. And then I'm I'm going back to your article and say, okay, what's this Matt guy upset about about bringing new hunters in? I don't know, right? I'm not a public land hunter. I'm I'm not involved in that. Yeah. And then I start seeing where it's like where you're talking about like, hey man, there used to be five cars at the trailhead. Now there's 50 cars at the trailhead. You know, and I'm going, well, yeah, I kind of experienced that in Colorado where. At one day, I thought, this is a good spot, and I hiked in almost five miles by myself, you know, in the dark, which is a crazy deal for me. I'm, it was my first experience mm-hmm. doing this. I get set down. The sun comes up overlooking this little valley. I got an old man and his middle-aged son taking a piss right next to me, and down below me in the valley are three grown men walking through the valley that I'm hoping to be seeing elk in, and I'm like... I just walked five miles back here, and it's it's ruined before it even got started. Yeah, you know? yeah. and I'm having to tell them, I'm like, "Hey guys, if you see me flinch, please don't shoot me. I'm over here." You know, <laughs> and uh, and so that I was like, "Okay, Matt's making a little sense with this." And uh, yeah, and like I said, like I'm always coming up trying to come up with new ways of articulating my points more simply and cleanly, and. I, and I alluded to this last night with you. This is my newest way of describing the pro- problem I see with R3. Is when that happened to you, you weren't then more happy. You were less happy you were out there. Correct. So, and I am constantly running into hunters and when I'm out hunting. And the look on their face is one of diminished joy to be out there. So... In my mind now, the way I've been saying it is you can't it's it's internally inconsistent to be pro R3. You just can't. Right. 
You are either R1, which is retention, or you're R2, which is reactivation and recruitment. Because any gains in terms of reactivation ret retention are going are gonna to be met by losses in terms of uh, retention. Right. So. The. And I think that that's. A, I think that that's essentially universal in the U.S. Yeah, and and you also have the the part of that too where when you do that and you overload that certain area, you can sit on that hill and look over there to Farmer Bill's Field and see all the elk that you hoped to have hunted that are now pushed all out of there and sitting on this guy's place that you can't get permission. Yeah. Oh, a lot of times there's this narrative. There's this narrative that they just, you just don't want to. You just don't want to work hard. You just have to work harder. If they're all the elk are on private land, pushed down to private land, the only definition of working harder that makes any sense is trespass. Right. You know. And and it, and at the same time, it it ties the R three in with if that's our goal. Where does that goal land on the spectrum of wildlife management? Right. You know, because if I've pushed them all out of their habitat, what good have I done for the actual species at this point? You know? Yeah. And so. And, and it is. It's billed as a, we need more hunters for more conservation dollars. But nobody ever thinks about what hunting pressure does to wildlife. Right. You know, it's, or that's absent. From the conversation, I, I don't know. Well, I I think it's all this way because R three is is about making money, right? You know, so um, it, it you know with this PR thing, it's you know the you ever heard the word like you know this word tautological? I don't. It means circular. So a handful of years ago. PR, there was a, the PR was amended so that now they can use those funds for R3. Correct. I didn't know that. So now we're in a position where the nonprofits will tell you, we need more hunters to raise more dollars for the PR, pro, uh, for, to generate PR revenue, Right. And then you, they take the PR revenue and use it to get more hunters. Right. So more more money to get more hunters to get more, or yeah, more hunters to get more money to get more hunters. Right. <laughs> uh, okay. So back to yeah. So that that just that turned into me. Um. You know, well, I guess at this point is. But I'm in this conversation or conservation thing is right about the time I have this dream, right? Because it's always the conservation side's always on my mind, um, and I'm reading all these books about all you know Roosevelt and all these old conservationist people, and so um, I have this dream, and it's it's you know Texas based because that's where I'm from, but yeah, um, we've we've got this piece of property that me and my buddies have hunted our whole lives. And, and this is in the dream? In or? the dream. In okay. the dream. And this lady moves in and buys the property. And she tells us we're never allowed to hunt there again. And um, and we're all mad and we can't figure it out. And then we decide, what do we just pitch in and buy the property back from her? 
And then we just have the property ourselves, and then we say whoever wants to go hunting out there can go hunt because we're so mad, you know. Mm-hmm. And in my dream, I like have this whole plan in my head of how we're going to, how we're going to do this. So I wake up, I tell my wife, and then I and she's like, "You're crazy." Here's another crazy idea that you have, you know. And then I tell Jancy, and he's like, "Yeah, I guess it could work," you know. But he's he's uh, artistic and not a he, he's not a thinker on that type of level. He's a thinker on how do I make something freaking awesome you yeah. know what i mean um and so there i am by myself and i and i have a, a a background in web design and stuff like that and i'm like i'll just do it i'll just get out my notepad and i'll write exactly how i would you know plan it out to be i'll build a website and i mean how much could it be to start a non-profit you know what i mean so i don't know i'm probably three four thousand dollars in right now on different stuff that i've got going for it but i um i started looking and i was like okay Here's the simple solution, right? Because I've listened to your podcast. I see everybody's complaint about everything that everybody doesn't like, right? That's You get way more of that than you get the things that people do like, uh, especially online. And so every one that I came up with or every complaint that I saw in my head could be remedied by having more space. That I would not be... I would not have a podcast if crowding wasn't an issue. Right. Like... Do I think, does everything that doesn't seem related to crowding, does it bother me? Sure. I do think that using dead wildlife as advertising instruments degrades hunting, you know, cheapens my chosen pastime. I do think that Hunting social media, I'm absolutely confident, 100% confident that hunting social media and hunting TV increase leasing. But if land was not a finite resource, I wouldn't give a shit about. Right. And I could, I wouldn't, certainly wouldn't, like the things that are a matter of taste, they don't bother me so much that I would be vocal about them if it wasn't for a lot of these things that I worry about diminishing the quality and the quantity of experience for people. So yeah, that, that it all comes down to crowding. I'm just, yeah, that's, yeah, the, it I, all comes down to crowding. I definitely have a, a stance that I take on, on that portion of it. Um, to touch on what the actual basis of for progeny is before I say that stance is that in my head, I thought, okay, you know, the average median salary in the U.S. somewhere around $60,000 for household income. Those people aren't going out and buying their own ranch, right? It's not, it's not going to happen. No. Um, and in, in a state like where I'm from, those people probably are going to have to decide between something important and a deer lease if they want to participate in that because our average deer lease price right now is close to $3,000 a person. And we have some in South Texas that are upwards of $25,000 a person a year to mm-hmm. go deer hunting. Um, so and, nearly half of the median. Income. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I heard, I heard uh, one of your episodes where y'all were talking about um, you had a man on here who was an outfitter and he was discussing how much that, you know, he would give a landowner mm-hmm. in, in relation to what, um, in relation to what your how many deer they had, oh yeah, oh, yeah okay, yes, yeah, yeah, and 
I kind of laughed when he was talking about, you know, oh, they, you know, block management might pay twenty five thousand, and I might pay forty thousand, and the guy had like forty thousand acres or something like that that he was going to get to access, and I, I had the same situation in Texas that same week that your podcast came out, where we had a landowner that had forty thousand acres in West Texas, and he offered it to me for half a million dollars for the year, Jeez. and so it's, you know, it's like I live in that world like yeah. daily, you know, and so my thought was, are we are we okay with ourselves enough in society to say that this is an important subject, the, the pastime, our way of life of, of hunting and fishing, our outdoor way of life? Is it important enough to us to say that it needs to continue for ourselves and our future generations? You know, that's step one. Like, do we not care if, if we lose it? Because if we don't, what are we all doing anyways? Just go out and do whatever you want and have fun, right? Yeah. But if we if we want to keep it, there has to be, if, if that's important, then we have to have something in place to allow that to happen. Or as the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, we're not going to be able to participate, period. You know, it's it's, it's going to be over. For, for Except for the elites. Right. Yeah. And so my thought process was that if that is possible and we do want to continue this, um, although we're a minority at 4%, roughly, of, you know, actually, outdoorsmen in whole, anglers and hunters, make up about 15% of the U.S. population. Oh, I never thought um, of that. Yeah. So, wow. But, um, so, if out of two of three people that hunt and fish, only fish. Right. And so, you know, your, your, out, your hunters make up a little over 4%. Okay. Of your of your population, and so, but I thought okay. all this like this just uh, briefly. When I think about this podcast, what I often think about that, I'm like, why are you devoting this kind of energy outside of work, outside of your job, on something that only impacts such a small fraction of the country? Right, you know. But I don't know, man. It's not born out of... It's just something I've done my whole life, and I'm pissed about a lot of stuff. Yeah. You know, so I'm like, I guess that's what makes me do it, even though it only... There's probably something I could devote time to that would have a chance of bringing more happiness to more people. Like, I don't know, focus on world hunger or something like that. <laughs> I guess in a sense I do that through my job, because I work as an egg researcher, but... Well, when you look at it, even at 4%, that means there's 15 million registered hunters yep. in the United States. When you look at it combined, there's about 40 million of us anglers and, and okay. hunters in the U.S. So even though we're a small percentage, it's still large numbers, right? Yes. And, and I started going through, okay, here's median salary, here's above median, here's below median, blah, blah, blah. What would it take? Well, at, at $3... If 5% of the hunting population donated $3 per month, we would be adding somewhere around, you know, 40,000 acres per year in new publicly accessible hunting land. And this is Texas. No, we're... we're well, yeah, but I'm just saying how much you'd add with that money depends heavily on where you're buying the land. So this is based on nationwide acreage averages. Okay. Price per acre average okay. for rural... Okay. So you're amateurizing your land purchases across the entire year. Right. Okay. And so, you know, that's kind of how we figured it up all the way up to if if you had um, if you had total participation in everybody 
at somewhere between three and five dollars per month and all 40 million people participated you would within 10 years add a new eight million acres or something like that of never hunted before public publicly accessible hunting and fishing ground okay so how much have you raised so far uh not much at all we're around forty eight hundred dollars in three months okay um all of it on membership and you've been you've been doing it for you've been you've been your website's been up for three months. The website's been up, yeah, for a little longer than that, but we've been legal to collect money as a nonprofit for three, three months. Three months. Yeah. And when you say all membership, what do you mean? So we it's we, we have um, we haven't had like donations. We haven't had like Matt Ranella write us a check for ten thousand dollars just because he likes the deal, right? But so, you become a member and then you you like you could link your bank account and it just automatically with yeah yeah so bucks. we've got a, a plans from three dollars ten dollars twenty five dollars and ninety five dollars a month and okay you can pick what you want and it just you know every month on the 15th it deducts that from your account okay um and and the way we set it up is that we only do one project at a time and so we vote because uh and this is why i get called a socialist now but uh, I felt that it's important. If for, you're voting, then you're a democratic socialist. Yeah. Uh, uh, I felt that it was important that it would be communal um, because I think everybody should be a part of it. And so what we... If you're a member, you, you get a vote. No. Anybody in the U.S. gets, gets a, a vote. vote. Yeah. Anybody in the U.S. gets a vote. And so what we do is we we used social media to... And we sent out, I paid out of my pocket to send out sponsored ads to every state to say, you know, basically, here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to buy private land to turn into public hunting ground. What state would you like to see more public hunting ground in? Out of all the stuff that came in back on that, Texas was the number one state pick. And I got crap for that too, but I was like, no, look, you can see if you want. I I actually, well, I didn't do Alaska or Hawaii, but Mm -hmm. the continental U.S., I put ads in every single state. And, um, and then we took that and said, what species is, is of most importance to you to see more publicly accessible hunting in? And it came back with uh, mule deer in Texas being the number one. Um, and so then we did one with, is it more important to you to have more huntable animals or a mix of hunting and fishing on the property? It came back hunting and fishing. So we found a, a piece of property in Texas that was a little over 6,000 acres. Total price on the property is like four point something million dollars. It has five miles of Pecos River frontage on it and it has enough species on there that it would add, you would be able to, to do like 120 hunts for different species, not just mule deer, but it's got mule deer, whitetail, javelina, hogs, two different species of quail, morning dove, white winged, you know, all kinds of stuff on there. How do you define a hunt? Um, for the big game stuff, you know, based on whatever the biologist quota is, then you would have a a, a, a draw to come out and do the hunt. So, uh, 120 groups would come out and hunt for a few days or a week or something. Yeah, like that? so to speak. Yeah, but in a, I mean, in a mathematical sense, it would be let's say like you've got 10 mule deer that you can harvest off this place, 10 whitetail you can harvest, and so that would be 10 hunts. 10 hunts. I see. You know? Uh, I see. So based okay. on the quota of animals that could be harvested each year in a sustainable fashion, that's how many hunts that we have found for that property. Mm-hmm. And then you have the fishing access and recreational access, stuff like that. Um, but that would be, you know, that's project one. And so with project one, 
we've determined here's how much the land cost, here's how much it has it, it cost us to have um, a ranch manager on staff all year there, basically a gatekeeper type person on staff to make sure that the right people are in, you know, your clerical type stuff, as well as doing business with a biologist to help us determine here's what needs to be harvested, you know, your quota numbers. And that final number was a little over $5 million. And um, so that's what we did. We said, here, here's project one. We need $5 million. Well, how do you know if that property is still going to be sitting there for sale when you get the money raised? That's where my, uh, my study on how our society works comes into play, right? Because let's be honest, it doesn't, it doesn't affect me. I'm not doing anything with the money until the money's spent for the project. So it doesn't affect me at all if, if people participate or don't participate, right? Because this is for the group. I get nothing more right. out of this than you get out of this. Right. And so the study is basically, here's, here's what y'all said we needed. We needed more land. There's 15 million hunters. There's 45 or 40 million hunters and anglers. You said overcrowding is the issue and solves our problem. Here's step one of the solution. Are you willing to give $3 to participate in this step? Now, if you're not, then don't go bitch about the no, that ain't, issue. I'm on board with all that. You like, know? stand up and do your part. Right. But still, my question stands. How do you know this property is still going to be there? We don't. And that's the, oh. that's the premise of it. Like, here it is. Do y'all want to go do this? If so, let's go do this. But if I think it'd be good to have a contingency plan in place. Like, we will find a comparable property. So there is. Yeah, it okay. says on our website and everything that if this property sells prior to us raising the funds, then we will have to switch to... You know, we had all those properties to begin with that we voted on, so we would just move down to the lit, you know, down yeah. to the next one. Or in the same manner, we could revote on a whole new set of property or piece of property if, if we needed to, you know. Um, but now I know you've gotten a little bit. So who would hold the the title? The nonprofit organization. Oh, okay. Would hold the, would hold the title to the profit or to the to the property, and with that, in our bylaws, it says that the property can never be sold to private ownership ever again. If for some reason the nonprofit was to go belly up, the property would either have to be turned over to the state that it's in or to a like-minded organization. Okay. Yeah. So if we've got something in the realm of Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, and we've got this big elk property, or we bought a corner crossing piece to allow access to somewhere else and we go belly up, we could donate that over to Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation for them to maintain. Your donors can feel very confident that the future generations will always be able to access Yeah, that that's the point is that we we are an organization whose sole goal is to add acres per outdoorsman. So it completely goes against our motto if we were to ever decrease the amount that, that, we, yeah. had, that we had purchased. Uh, what about putting it? What about putting it in a conservation easement? Um, well, at that point, you're talking to somebody that doesn't know anything about that, so you know that would have to be. It, we would have to have somebody redeem, like you or, or somebody. With well, like I don't know. That, I don't know that, much that, about them either. Like, I don't. I not know. I cannot get my head around stuff like that very well at all. But I know it would reduce your tax burden probably. Yeah, it's some areas, right? And also, we were able to secure um, 501c3 um, status. And so, in that, 
we really don't have a tax burden. You don't have to pay taxes yeah. on it. There's certain states have different laws within their state that requires you to pay something in the form of taxes, but nothing. I mean, minimal compared to what people think. When it you know, I'm talking on the on that piece of property that we have right there. Well, in Texas, we wouldn't as a 501c3 wouldn't have to pay anything. But that same property in a different state, you know, we might pay $2,000, $2,500 a year for that size property. So very minimal in the grand scheme of, of, yeah. of how it works out. Okay, what about trying to generate revenue off of it? Like, would having some cattle on the place reduce the carrying capacity for the hunting? It would, animal? and it would be, that would be something that we'd have to work with the biologist on, but we're also at the same time, it's, it's important to us to try to reclaim that ground into what its native habitat is supposed to be. Right. So you'd have somebody like yourself that would come out and say, these plants and this stuff over here is here because of agricultural purposes. This it's not, you know, for this piece of property. Mm-hmm. And we would like to have those piece of property remain native to their area, um, which, as you understand, a lot of times bringing in livestock could ter- could turn that over into something else, you know, or bring in foreign plants. Or yeah. Whatever it is. Yeah. Um, here, I mean, I don't know anything about how that ecosystem works, but in Montana, if you were going to do some a project here, I think you'd have more wildlife and the property be more sustainably managed and a, a healthier, more functioning ecosystem if you had cattle right. than if you didn't. And if that's the case... Because the system evolved under grazing. <clears throat> right. And if that was any property that that's the case in, um, you know, we would be more than willing to, to look at that. The ultimate goal is... What is the absolute, because it's not just about adding acres either, right? It's about quality acres. Oh, yes. Because there's pieces of property that are dirt cheap in the middle of nowhere, Texas, that you're never going to see a deer on that I could go buy right now out of my own pocket and say, hey, it's publicly humble, and nobody's ever going to see a thing. Why is that? Just because there's nothing out there. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's, I mean, $200 an acre to buy the property. and Really? Yeah, and you're not, you're, 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 is it is maybe you'll see a horny toad? You know what I mean, like that. Maybe is it that way because it's been mis- is is that land that way because it's been mistreated or just there's just the, no there's no food source there's no water source it's just very yeah, dry it's just barren ground okay there, you know it's like living on the moon but so point being you know it it's it's also beneficial because we see that right now even in our current system I have the closest piece of public land in Texas. There is a piece that to where you live to where I live is literally a mile and a half from my house, and it's in kind of a type of program that y'all have of block management. Although we don't have block management in Texas, but it's a lady that owned the piece of property that told the Texas Parks and Wildlife you can let people out here to hunt. And um, cool gesture, you know, it's dove hunting and rabbit hunting only. There's about one and a half times carrying capacity of longhorn cattle that are on the property. It's a barren wasteland. You're never going to shoot anything out there. And the signs broke Not down. Not even a dove or a bunny? No. The, the signs broke down. The fences are mangled. It's just like, hey, I had a piece of land out there and uh-huh. I want to do something nice. So, I mean, awesome. If you want to go out there, just walk around, look for arrowheads or something like that. You know, I mean, you could do that. But it's not quality hunting property, which... I think is is 
is an important measure in this whole equation. Absolutely. Is that it does us no good to to put more property out there that doesn't have game because all you're doing is shoving people back to where the game are again, you know? And yeah. so you're over you're overcrowding. You have to have places that people can go and feel like they have a chance to be successful in order to disperse the crowds from from certain centralized areas. The only re- like the reason I bring up this bit about trying to generate revenue from the property is because I'm rooting for you. And it seems like if you could do that, then it would provide a mechanism for generating revenue and buying more property. Yeah, so each each property will have, um, and like I said, I don't know anything about state parks or anything out here. You know, you sent me to that one yesterday and I drove up there and real cool. And we don't have anything like that. In the state of Texas, if I was to do that, it's, you know, five bucks to enter the park to get my tag. And if I want to stay overnight, it costs me whatever, $25 or 20 bucks to stay overnight. And if I, it costs me $3 to apply in the state of Texas for a hunt. And if I draw it, it's $130 trespassing fee to go out there and actually hunt. Okay. Um, And so we're trying to make it to where each state that we're in, we set up the process of that land in a similar fashion to the way the state is already ran. That way there's not a mass confusion for people that are, you know, applying for that type of stuff. So in, in essence, that piece of property, you know, let's say we had the 10 mule deer or whatever. Anybody that wants a chance to hunt mule deer, you apply for, you know, you pay your $3 to put in your application for the mule deer. If you get drawn, it's a hundred bucks to come out there and, and hunt your mule deer. It's $3. Deer. You could be a, you, you, that the three the $3 for to apply is not the same as the $3 to be a member. No, correct. Okay. It's just your, like any other application fee in, in yep. the states that you're yep. looking for. Um, fishing access. Most of our boat ramps in the state of Texas, it's, it's five bucks to put your boat in or something like that, you know. And so same type of concept. You want to come in and put your kayaks in and float the five miles of Pecos River that we have, pay your $5 fishing permit or do like we do at our state parks where for $40, you can get an annual permit and come in and do that all you want to. Um, and so that's kind of the revenue generation system for those. Okay. How much would it cost me to hunt the six, this hypothetical 6,000 acres? Three for the application fee and then what are the other expenses? If Let's say if you get drawn and it was in line with the, the state of Texas, it would be $130 for your for your access, for your trespassing fee. Um, I so, see. So you would pay $130, you'd come in and you'd have a week to hunt your mule deer in there. I see. Um, which in the state of Texas, you know, people are like, somewhere out here, people might be like, well, that's a ripoff. I got to pay a hundred bucks. In the state of Texas, they're going, well, a mule deer hunt's going to cost me 5,500. So a hundred bucks is a really good deal. You know? Yeah. The, um, yeah. You can't make the enemy perfect. Right. The, the good the enemy are perfect. But yeah. And in, in here, mate, if you did something like this here, maybe that if you're trying to keep it in line with what the state's doing, you couldn't generate revenue that way. But maybe here, it would be that you had a manager that was running cattle. Right. Or you were, le- or you know, you were leasing out the grazing rights. Correct. You know? Yes. You, yeah, you if that's this. a good fit for the ecosystem, then yeah, mm-hmm. that's what you do. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think there's, people have questioned me on that before, and, I, and, and my kind of theory to this is, is that, Guys, this plan is happening across the United States in a privatized fashion already. You know, I mean, it's you've got deer leases that are working right now, whether it's people paying a yearly lease fee for just those people to come, or what if you had it to where instead of those four people who are paying 
1500 to 2000 apiece, you've got 200 people applying for that tag and then 10 of them pay the 130, you're coming out to the same types of numbers, you know, unless you're trying to become a millionaire off leasing a piece of property, then that's a different story. You yeah. know? But if you're just trying to make it survive, then, you know, it's, it's working across the board, just like you're talking about with up here, you got people that are running cattle on, on land and I'm sure they're paying a lease fee to do that to the state. Yes, they are. Yeah. Uh, it, it, your plan, I mean, accomplishes the laudable goal, if it succeeds, of providing hunting opportunity to the masses. Well, if you were really successful to the masses, right. you know, tunnel in, but to people at minimal cost. So that's... I think in areas such as this, too, you can see that just because that was another pet peeve um, um, that came up on the on the Meat Eater podcast recently was all your corner crossing issues, right? Mm-hmm. So in our in our case, we may not come up here and buy 2,000 acres, but we may buy a section that gives that, you that access. Now you yeah, access, yeah, you know, and yeah. so that was my deal with with um, I, I got I got upset the other day listening to the podcast when they've spent. I'm sure now it's well over $100,000 to try to help out those four people from Missouri that got in trouble mm-hmm. with the corner crossing deal, mm-hmm. right? And so now we've raised money to spend over $100,000 to help these guys with legal fees for doing something that none of us believe they should be in trouble with in the first place. Right. And and now we're to the point where they have, um, and I might get in trouble for this, I don't know, I don't care, but you know, you've got, through that company, they have the land access initiative program right, which they did the pond and wherever for, but they just, Cal just recently came on and they said they're going to take some money out of that program to give to these people for legal fees. And oh. I'm like, buy the, buy the corner, buy, right. buy the section. Why don't we, instead of paying legal fees that the rich people are always going to win, right? Because it doesn't matter if you, if you get proved not guilty, right? If you come out of it innocent, you still paid $100,000 in legal fees. You right. lost. It doesn't matter, you know. You may not be a criminal, but you lost financially out of that deal. Whereas, wait, well, I'm not getting that quite because that in perpetuity, presumably, unless it was appealed or something like that, for that hundred thousand dollars, we'd get the we get corner crossing privileges. Not necessarily because they're 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 fighting criminally and they're fighting civilly, right? And uh-huh. so, sure, if they won both of them. And then the state changed the law, or even though there's really not a law, yeah. supposedly anyways. My thing is, is that a guy that's got enough money to purchase 30,000 acres in that area has enough money to say, let's play this until you're tired of playing. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so it's, you're right, in perpetuity, you might get that, but I promise you, next time you go crawl over that fence, he's going to be right there trying to ruin your hunt or taking you back to court for something else you did this time that wasn't in the last case. Yeah. Know? And um, it's kind of the, the corner crossing thing. I'm glad people are working on it, glad people are thinking about it. I hope they, I hope the corner crossing advocates win, but it's kind of a red herring. Yeah. Because it's not going to, it's going to increase. Uh, huntable acres in the in a handful of western states by three percent. Right. 
And and if you reduce hunting pressure for me by three percent, hunting pressure is still going to be way too high. Correct. But at the same time, you've got to start somewhere, right? No, it's, it's, I, I'm all for it. Yeah, if you're we, knocking it down, we should be doing that. We should be doing right. your thing. We right. should be, yeah. So I guess the next question then becomes: How do you get the money? Yeah, that's no, that's exactly <laughs> yeah. where I'm going. How the hell? And it's tough. Do it's we tough. make this thing go? Yeah, it's tough to convince people. Which I did. Okay. Maybe my personality and maybe being hyper-focused on stuff and ADD, if I see something I like and you tell me it's $3, I'm like, take it. Take it all. You know, yeah. I'm signing up right now. You no, no further need to convince me. I like the plan. Let's do it. Yep. Um, doesn't work that way for a lot of people, right? Mm-hmm. Even people that deal with the same topic that we're discussing, there are hundreds of thousands of people that feel the same way you do about overcrowding. There's not hundreds of thousands of people who have come to Four Progeny and signed up for three dollars a month. Yeah, and part of that is they don't know about it. Right. I I know. I mean, I I've known about it for a couple months, a, a, a tiny, tiny, tiny bit, and I didn't. I will now. Matter of fact, I'm, I'm going to be your first uh, donor. I'm going to pay. I'm going to join, and I'm also gonna pay I'll give you 300 bucks I'll Heck play yeah. for I'll pay for a hundred slack assers out there and, that and so that's the theory right that was my theory from a quote-unquote social standpoint was that and having those pride because here comes everybody again right you got a three a 10 a 25 and 95 well what more do I get for the 95 than I get for the three right and I go nothing you, you get the same thing you either have to be Cool with knowing that somehow you got a higher paying job than your fellow man who can only afford three, but you're both putting in for the same cause. I think right? that the, I think that the logic behind what you just said is the logic that it would take to save quality publicly accessible hunting. I don't think quality publicly accessible hunting will be saved. I say that all the time. I think it will die. Right. But if it doesn't, it will be because people adopt that mindset where they're like god damn it i'm gonna look out i'm gonna do what's right right i'm not gonna just look out for me i'm gonna look out for the community of felt my community of fellow hunters that's what it's gonna take right to say this your theory you know is like it's like you just signed up for for 10 people for an entire year you know what i mean so sure we we and that's when people are like well you'll never get to five percent or you know my my thought was I've been told, well, how do you convince all 15 billion people? I'm like, I don't. I just need to convince 5%. And that's 5% at $3. So if I can convince, you know, half of that or a third of that at $10, I've done the same thing. You know, and so if you have somebody like you that says, I'll put 300 bucks. Well, now that's 10 people for a year that, you know, Mm -hmm. that don't have to sign up or can... And I'm not, and I'm not a fat cat. You might find some fat cats. Right, and so, and and that was my deal on. This is what I loved about something you brought up in one of your recent podcasts was about what because you know it's 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 what are what are the big names doing? They're they're obviously using social media to recruit people to purchase their goods, right? Yeah. I mean that's 
Nobody's going to lie to you about that. They, they have that's, to. That's 95% yeah, of what Yeah, that's, that's marketing, yeah. right? You, I mean, that's, that, okay, that's 95% of their, percent of their impact on hunting is correct, that. Correct, correct. Yeah. If, you, if you follow social media, if you follow the bigger, the bigger names, if, you, um, if you've looked at anybody affiliated with media during the last month, 80% of their posts have been about a first light sale, right? I mean, that's just, and I, and I don't fault them for that. That's marketing, right? And they can reach the masses and they can sell their product and that's what they're doing. My question is, what happens with the money after that? Because you have to understand just from a simplistic ideology that if I'm convincing people that they need to purchase this gear, I must be under the assumption that they're purchasing that gear to go hunting if there's an overcrowding issue, what am I doing to impact that overcrowding issue? That's where I would. They, like they, they have the hunting industry has a reputation of reducing, op, taking that money and using it to reduce opportunity. Correct. Correct. I I I wish there's. You and I were talking earlier. Like when I look about my peephole analogy. And that people, the people, as I look through, I, I get to see one one millionth of the facts pertaining to hunting and the hunting industry right. that are out there. There's this urn, this giant urn of marbles, and each marble is a fact. And I I've got three or four marbles in my hand, and there are so many alarming. Facts where the hunting industry has fucked its clientele. For sure. I you, just because my small sample shows that. Right, you know? right. I think if I had to guess, I would guess I, I have a hard time imagining an industry that fucks its clients nearly as bad as the hunting industry. Maybe the pharmaceutical company. <laughs> I would probably say so on the pharmaceutical <laughs> Um but, but uh so Here's 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 a couple here's a couple marbles that I got, you know. I don't know how much. I don't know how much, but uh uh what's the guy Real Tree Jackie? No, uh, uh, Bill Jordan. What? Real Tree's Bill Jordan. Buckmaster's Jackie Bushman. Oh. Okay. Bill what? It's pronounced Jordan. It's spelled Jordan. Bill Jordan. Yeah. He owns a bunch of land that he bought. For sure. From the proceeds of selling camel. So does the Buspis Company from Wild Game Innovations. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I mean, all those guys. So uh, Kimber, or not Kimber, uh, in Wyoming, the, the firearms manufacturer, they own a big ranch. Uh, Weatherby. Weatherby, yeah. I hear rumors about other companies. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, yeah. I don't want to say because I'm not sure. I would, you know, I don't want to indict somebody falsely. But Cabela's is a, that was when I was about. I would, you're 36. Yeah. Yeah. When I, I was a little younger than you when I did my first piece of advocacy, which was writing them a letter because they were taking the money I was giving them for gear and using it to buy up working landscapes and subdivide that people used to be able to hunt and subdividing them and selling them off as exclusive hunting properties. Right. So the hunting industry has a reputation of doing exactly the opposite. Well, Mossy Oak, which of was, what? was a camo company, right? Yeah. In its inception, 
They now have Mossy Oak Whitetail Properties, which is taking a piece of property that, let's say, might be worth $100,000, let's just say for numbers, $100,000, going out and developing into this special whitetail property and selling that property for $200,000. Yeah. Two, so it's it's commercializing a way of life, which seems asinine to me, right? That this is, and I think, um, because I think there's some smart people that we both know that have great knowledge on our forefathers of the hunting industry all i mean just hunting in general all the way back to clovis indians which people have heard a thousand times now in the past year imagine those people finding out like yeah you can't hunt here because this guy's you got to pay to come over here and do you know what i mean mm-hmm. like it's like what this is the this is the group of what? people you're telling me we should get our information and gain this knowledge and it's all so important but you're also making it to where I can't participate in that. Yeah. So what it, What am I supposed to do? I'm just supposed to be happy that that knowledge is out there, but never be able to get it's. It's applicable to nothing. I can. I can't go apply that knowledge that you've told me to go. Right. Learn, right. Know? Right. And so. Right. But yeah. I, I think if you because I have no that, place to apply it. Right. And yeah. so you've got um, a study came out recently uh, that last year hunting in general generated $49.5 billion on hunting and hunting purchases in the United States. Wow, that's the figure? Yeah. These, Where can I find that? Uh, I found it online. I can okay. send it to you. These companies are making good money. You know what I mean? I, I know people I, okay, in the industry. I, can we, know people in the industry. I know that these people are making good good money. The top people. But then I know a lot of people that make their living off of it and they have pretty... Just middle class. Oh, for, for sure. For sure. And no, I don't know, like... Like, I try not to talk too much about my brother's company and stuff. I just try to stay out of that. But, like, they have a... They have a... They're owned by... Um, uh, what, do they, what do you call that? Uh, a venture capitalist firm? Right. I don't know what the people at the top are making. Right. But I mean, I'm just—I'm not talking about individuals. I'm talking about companies as a whole, right? Products as a whole. Yeah. Or and and if you want to talk about even bigger companies, I mean, I I understand. I mean, I definitely get your point about wanting to stay away from media. At the same time, it has to be brought up because they are the biggest in the yeah. media industry yeah. in, in our industry. But if you take it over to Bass Pro Shops, who goes and strokes a check for five billion to buy Cabela's, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you take it to, which, I mean... It's, there's a lot of money floating around. Yeah, yeah. These yeah. camo companies that we were just talking about and stuff like that. Okay, but it could be... There's a, there's a part of me that's extremely cynical. So, what happens with privatization and, and the, the way I envision it? Oh, when a piece of property goes from being publicly accessible to, pri- to private, mm-hmm. then the number of... Hunter days per year, per acre, goes down. Correct. Okay. Let's say it goes down by a factor of five. Okay. So by contributing to privatization, the hunting industry, or ignoring privatization, they contribute to it wittingly and unwittingly. Like wittingly is when they buy up land for themselves and their cronies. And unwittingly is when they hire hunting influencers to hype it up which inspires rich guys to go buy up 
exclusive access for themselves. Uh, so let's say that now with all the private land, with the, all the publicly accessible private land is now like door banging government programs. Now it's just too lucrative to be in a program like that. Too lucrative to be able you be able to bang on a door and get permission. It's all leased or all bought as hunting properties. So now there's only 20% of the hunter days per year on that land that there used to be. Where there used to be five guys, now there's one. Right. Maybe the hunting industry's calculus is like, yeah, but that guy's got freaking five times more money to spend on our shit. Right. So I don't know. Yeah, Maybe I, that's why they don't care. And if it's profit, if it's profit driven, which there's a ninety percent chance it is, then it is. Then it it's, is. Then it's that's all. Know, then, yeah. it's, then it's tough to compete against that. However, I do know that there are. Uh, I think I put it. I don't know if I've got it on there, on the website or not. Of how much, um, how much undeveloped like rural land is out there that gets bought and sold every year that, and I'm not, I'm not saying I disagree with you in the, in the fact that I have disdain for them taking our money and go buying private land themselves. Um, because sometimes that does run me the wrong way. But I also, I also understand a guy that probably started from very little and finally get money and going, I'm going to go buy this ranch and I'm going to hunt this ranch, whatever. And so I, I have a, I do have mixed feelings about that where my, I don't know. It's just like, I'm not in that industry. Right. And I wouldn't do that to people. Right. I got seven acres here. Six or seven acres. Did you see my sign? Right, yeah. Trespassing allowed. If I had 700,000, the signs would say the same way. Right. And it just seems like, it's almost like, uh, what do you call that? Uh, If you're in the hunting industry, it seems like you should have some fiducial responsibility to look out for your clients. Yeah. and, and It's not a law. It's just like... Have some love for your for the people that made you who you are. Yeah, Provide them opportunity. Don't, dem- or at least be sure. neutral. For at least sure. be neutral with respect to opportunity. Well, my thing is, why not? Even if it's not equivalent, why not do something in favor of it? Also, right. So if you're if if and here was kind of my deal is why isn't there? We'll use real tree for this example. What what's the point on a let's well I tell you what let's use Kuyu because they really do have nobody we don't know anybody from there and they really do have three hundred dollar jackets so what's the amount of a three hundred dollar jacket that you can give up that doesn't hurt your bottom line right well zero any of it's going to hurt your bottom line if they give if you give a penny it's going to hurt your bottom line penny. right yeah if if there's Okay. Not to put too fine a point on it. Right. No, I, I see what you're saying also. I'm saying more or less, I guess I guess it goes into a personal opinion of how much is enough. You know what I mean? You're not... They don't you're, you're think not of gonna, it. You're not going to That's not hurt, the way... Right? That's not the way business works. It, no. It's always more, oh. more, more. Believe me. <laughs> I understand that. But if... I a, mean, especially if you got investors involved, it's like... If a... Okay, so here's a here's a better point then. How many times a year do you do we see those jackets go on their 
First Light, for example, 20% off sale right now, right? So at some point throughout the year, it's worth dropping 20% to sell the jacket, right? right? So you, but that's probably all ba- that's probably all baked in. They like when they they know at some okay, point. Okay, but gonna... if you can do that, then you can give a dollar. Yes. If you say that you can do that, then you must. I mean, just I guess the question you. we're the question we're grappling with is how much is the profit margin on the hunting industry? Right. And I guess I suspect because I, I think the hunting industry doesn't give a shit about its clients. They only all their okay. I like to let's operationalize the term "giving a shit." Okay, to me, it's. Do they make meaningful sacrifices to benefit publicly accessible hunting? And in, in, in that in that in that operationalized thusly, I'd say they don't give a shit. Yeah, and every one of them would say yes, we do. Well, oh yeah, that's we, what they. We, we don't. They, this, they always. We this, yeah, we yeah. Oh, we, Which goes to your theory of nonprofits, and I don't know if you've ever looked at financials of nonprofits. They're all available online, but you can yes. see some of your bigger nonprofits. You know, let's take it because they're not really in the hunting industry, but we always tout them. The NRA, three hundred million dollars they took in last year. Okay. Three hundred million they took in last year. Uh, Ducks on DU was somewhere between one hundred sixty and one hundred eighty million dollars of revenue. Okay. That they did last year. That money's out there. People are giving that money away. If that if if a hundred and eighty million dollars came to Fort Progeny, you know, I mean, divide that by two thousand. That's the amount of acres that you would have next year to put in. Right. You know what I'm saying? And so that's um that's where I think once if anybody if it does get the you need the, to, the theoretical red wave and it catches on something, yeah. I think it blows up because I don't care. You know what I mean? Whatever. I mean, if there's if if there has if if there comes a time that there has to be a salary given for somebody because this is what they do nonstop. You know what I mean? Like this is their job twenty four seven. Then yeah, that can be a minimal minimal salary, whatever a good working wage is to do that job. Whatever. I don't care. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it's it's not made to go throw big benefits and and fancy elitist dinners and do all this different kind of stuff and 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 take my money from this nonprofit and donate to that nonprofit that's not what it's about in in for progeny it will be we said we're buying acreage for outdoorsmen and i guarantee i dare you to try to say that we didn't do that yeah and so i think that's where yeah that's that yeah oh yeah because with with the existing nonprofits, there's so much under the surface that drives the agenda. You only get to see pinhole again. You know, you don't know. You don't know what's going on. What you know? A lot of it's going this, to politicians, to lobbyists. Sure. It, yes. Who are fighting a losing battle? In our pr- prove to me that over the past decade we've increased our acreage per outdoors. No, it's only ever all oh, my. 52 years of life, it's only right. ever gone down. And so we're fighting a battle that we're losing at instead of taking those funds and counteracting that program by saying, we're giving you our money and we're not gaining any land. So we're not going to give you our money and we're just going to go buy the land ourselves. And that was my theory behind it was that instead of counting, right? Because once you bring up anything about public land, it's that I'm anti-government or anti-this and that. And I told you about Well, the the, 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 that they're... Okay. So that there, our politicians in Montana, which is a very conservative state, 
10 years ago when there was all the, I'd, I'd say 15 years ago to 10 years ago is when it was, was peak uh, sell it all time. Right. Our politicians have, even in this state, see that as a losing position. They, public lands, public hands, because the, the outdoorsmen in this state have spoken loudly. Right. So that's a losing as it should so, be. So and I, I can still support that, right? It's not. I just say I don't. I just want to say like that's not the mindset anymore in a lot of the West, right? And right. I don't think that. Um, well, it's like we talked about that. I had the conversation with the other guy from the company that that said they couldn't support me because I wasn't turning it over to the state or to the government, right? Right. And okay, so, let's back up a little bit. So that's one criticism that's been le leveraged against your plan is that. I'm not turning, turning it over, over to, to the, the state, state, right? And yeah. so, in theory, my theory is is that one politically, if your constituents say we don't want to do this or we do want to do it, that's your job, anyways, right? They're fighting for what their constituents are asking them to fight for, right? And and whether they're doing a good job or not of that, they're, they're doing it, okay? And so. Is it not beneficial to while they're fighting that fight to keep what we have for us to go add to what we have? And that was kind of my theory on that. And as it doesn't as bother me at all that you're not turning it over. That isn't right. Is you know if you if you've got you've got mechanisms in place to provide assurances to your donors and your members that this they're going to be able to. Put in for that tag and and have equal opportunity, and everybody is going to have equal opportunity in perpetuity. Then it might seems to me it's like could be more secure. Right, could be more secure exactly, than state because land. what happens when and people don't think this happens, but it does all the time. And I can show you online where it's happening in our state right now, where I turn. Let's say I turn that sixty four hundred acres over to the state, of and then they sell it when they get and into then financial. They Hey, we're not making any money off this piece of property. We're not generating any tax dollars off this piece of property. We probably ought to put this up for sale. Guess who buys that? Another elitist, and you never get to step. No, that, that, no, that doesn't bother. That you know? doesn't and bother so me at all. That was my response back to the other person: was Why don't you look into what we're doing a little bit and understand that we're not anti what the government's doing? I have no qualms with. With the government at all, I, I appreciate the fighting for what we're doing. You know, like I don't know why that came up as I. I don't under. That's just the way things are now. Like I get, you're trying to be you're you're uh, infringing on people's rights with this. With your talk about, you know, uh, uh, all the leasing. It's people's right to lease land if they want and all that stuff. It's also, it, you're trying to tell people what companies to support. I'm like, isn't it also people's right to use their purchasing dollar in a way that, that that's consistent with their values? Right. Isn't it also uh, my right to say how I think about right. things? Isn't it also somebody's right to donate to an entity that's trying to provide some public access? Right. <laughs> so... But I guess we should move the discussion towards how do we grow this thing, man? I, th I think that's the kicker is that 
The, I'm starting. I'm starting. The hunt quietly thing is going to go online. We're going to do a, an Instagram, Facebook thing, and it's going to. There's going to be a lot on it. We got a lot of ideas, but one thing is going to be highlighting companies that don't um, contribute to hunting hype, like gear companies. Um, calling out bad behavior by hunting influencers, celebrating nonprofits that have an access and a habitat component without the R3. And uh, I'll help, you know, I don't know, I don't know how successful it's going to be, but I, I would like to help. Oh, for sure. And I, 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 I want to see that side of the industry because. Whether we agree with it or not, they have the voice right now. And I would like to see that side of the industry understand that what Four Progeny is doing is beneficial to them because it gives those people that they're selling to a way to participate in an uninhibited manner. They're not going to go out there and have to spend thousands of dollars to get a lease or to go on an outfitted hunt. They're not going to go to a place that's overcrowded. They're going to have a quality place to go hunt. Why would you not want to participate in spreading the word? And even if they don't, right? Who, even if they go come back and, and give me your answer and say, if we gave you a penny per jacket we sold, it would hurt our bottom line. Our investors would be pissed. Great. How about for free, you just tell people to go check this out. Mm -hmm. Because when you say, go buy my book, the next day, it's on the New York bestseller list. So people are listening to you when you when you say this. You know, when Michael Waddell does an interview with this young man I know's podcast who had no listeners at all, Michael Waddell does a podcast with him. He's got a huge trending podcast on the iTunes charts. Mm. People listen to what the big name people say. So if if three dollars is too much for you as a hundred thousand heir or millionaire to donate per month for the cause at least use your platform to say, here's a good avenue for us to help start adding acreage for outdoorsmen, which benefits all of us that, that participate in this way of life. Would you take corporate money? I don't care whose money it is because we don't have an agenda and we're not going to follow anybody. No, I, I think you, you should. I, I think that, I think, I think you should. There's laws, it's there's just, laws about that. It's just, in the how do you, how do you keep, how do you keep it that like, from any influence seeping in, uh, does, is that possible? Yeah, because I don't care, and I'm not making it. I'm not making a profit off of this. Yeah, I guess that's the thing. So I don't, Skyler. You'd have to be the face of this thing, yeah, and you and you'd have to be if it starts to grow, right? And you're getting ten thousand dollars from Remington Arms or whatever. You'd have to be like the face of it, and you right. have to be saying, "I've been right here from the beginning. I have. I never cared. I still don't care. All this is is." You input money, we output land. That's it. And that's what I've said. I said that on another podcast the other day that I couldn't care less about an actual paper dollar. All it is to me is a piece of paper I hand another man and he hands me land back for it. That's all it is. Yeah. Right? And so it's just, it's something that somebody else deems necessary for us to make this transaction. And so that's that's what this is about, right? And if if... When a guy signs up for a $3 a month plan, he gets a little deal by his name on our website that says donating member and, or supporting member or something like that. 
And if Remington gave me ten thousand dollars, they would have a little deal by their name that said "supporting member." You know, it doesn't it doesn't say that Matt gave us three hundred dollars. You don't know if Matt or Bill or who gave the mm-hmm. most money because that's not what it's about. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that's where it would work out for us on that level. Is that with the corporations, you should probably shout them out because they're going to want that, and it doesn't matter anyway. Yeah, but. And, and but I think at the same time, in principle, do do they not? And, and maybe this is me, and maybe this is why sometimes I, I I fail at things, is that I don't understand why it's that important to you to get patted on the back instead of just doing the right thing for the community. Oh, I 100% agree. And so I, but I just think of corporations as like so, they're just so self-interested that they'll, they, they would be more inclined to give yeah, I have a thing with my kids at home, and it's and it's the same way my dad did me, and maybe it's too harsh. I don't know. But doing something routine that you should do is not worthy of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if it, we have a rule in our house that yeah, that you have to you have to win at something. I, I have a I have a big policy about being a winner. I cannot stand to lose at anything I do, and so. I learned at an early age that if you made your bed as soon as you woke up every single day, then you've won the first thing you've done for the day. So you can't be a loser for the rest of the day because you already won the first thing. And so we have that rule at my house with a three-year-old and a six-year-old that, by God, before you walk down those stairs in the morning, your, your bed needs to be made because you've already started the day as a winner. And I don't go upstairs and go, great job, baby. Right. You made your bed. Yeah, that's just, no, that's what you're supposed to yeah. do when you finish eating. You're supposed to wash your dishes off. You mm-hmm. know, but, but, I mean... Why do I leave it on the counter for another person to deal with? That's that's my pro- I live in the house. I participate in the system of the house. I have to pull my weight. My weight sometimes at my house is more financially than what my kids' weight is because they don't have a job. Yeah, wouldn't it? Same. The world the world would be a way better place for hunters if the hunting industry, yeah, them donating to groups like yours was like making their better. Wiping their ass. Yeah, it was well, just part of the game. And I think you, I think you, you understand you that, that it's it's simple to see. And I think a lot of people see this when it comes to the financial side. And they all donate a little bit, but it's just, it's like, it's a to- they're token donations. It's right. not, it's not, you, you can tell it's not meaningful because opportunity is going down. You know, it has been our whole lives, you know. That's a, it, it, it drives me crazy, but I do, I have not, um, is as as much negative feedback as I have gotten from big name people in the industry about it, or you know, just what do they say? Well, a lot of it is, you know, like we talked about about it just doesn't align with our policies, and then you have a lot of people that just, because you're not turning it over, <laughs> yeah, or because they think it's some kind of scam where I'm going to get rich off of people or something like that. Yeah, which I mean. It's really easy to go look up. You know you're going to. It's really easy okay, to do that okay. and see that if I try to make a profit off of this land, I'm wearing an orange jumpsuit in federal prison, and I don't want to do that. So you need to do two things, in my opinion. You need to put and look it up for people and put it on your website. Right. And you know, people need heroes. They really do. They need people they can trust because people are busy, so they want they want. Instead of looking into stuff themselves, they want to just trust somebody. Yeah, tell me the answer. Yeah. Uh, I wince at that because I don't, with this little, I am just trying to get people to think for themselves. Right. 
I don't want to be a name. I don't want, I don't want to be trusted. I just, if you hear things come out of my mouth that inspire you to think, then I'm happy about yeah, that. But, right. but evaluate everything I'm saying. You know, that's my message to my followers. Evaluate all of it and see if it makes any sense. Because I don't, don't want to, I don't want to give people their opinion. But you're going to, yeah, but you're going to have to be a cult of personality for it to work. People are going to have to trust you. Right. And I think we, we have the open door policy with the financials. There's one bank account linked to all of Four Progeny. And at any given time, if someone wants a screenshot of it, withdrawals or deposits, more than welcome to look at yeah. it. I don't care. But and, they, I mean, corruption, corruption, like, don't you think that, I mean, we both know that the NRA is highly scrutinized, but they're. Right. The corruption. Right. And, and it's, it's uh, never going to La, be... LaPierre, or what's his name? Yeah, LaPierre. What's his first name? Uh, Wayne, I think. Yeah, he's, what, like, buying all kinds of stuff for well, himself? He's, he's got his... a salary of over $2 million okay. a year. Okay. You know what I mean? And so that's that's another deal where we looked at it and said that... It'd be sweet if you could... Yeah, I don't want to say that. We, yeah, I was going to say, it'd be sweet if you didn't have a salary from it. We looked at... at um, you don't yet, obviously. No, I haven't taken not a single penny. Uh, we looked at it on, you know, numbers. Like, let's say that this thing did work and we were taking in $50 million a year, right, to, to buy this land with. We looked at what's the absolute minimum... That because any nonprofit, the salary is based on. Um, if you read their their rules, it's on a justifiable, non egregious number, right? Okay. There's no set percentages. A lot of people use numbers like two percent is what they of what comes in each year is what they can use to pay for salaries or whatever. You know, we looked at um, that and found the lowest that people got on decent sized nonprofits. And one hundred and fifty thousand dollars was the—that's the minimum uh-huh. that anybody made. And so I said, nobody will ever make more than one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in doing this in two thousand twenty-two money. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, whatever yeah. inflation not included. But if we had, because if you do the numbers, if all forty million people participated, you're talking about bringing in billion. You know, you're mm. into the bees. If you had a nonprofit that brought in a billion dollars a year and the people running it or the, whoever was getting the salary made $150,000, if somebody balked at that, you would be yeah. like, uh, yeah, yeah. name me another company that manages a billion dollars. You know what I mean? So, well, so you, you, have, you, 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 can, you, can, you can have a very clean benchmark that's very people, very easy for people to understand. It would be extremely extremely transparent right and that is this you have on your website you have how much are we taking this year what is the mean per acre price of land in the US and how many acres did you buy right then you do a little division and you say okay 95% of my or 90% of my donation obviously went to buying land. Right. You know? and, and so I think it's a it's a pretty easy concept to grasp. It's, it might be simple to a fault because some people are like, well, this, you're making it sound so simple that it must be a scam. Yeah, right. You know, and right. so whatever, think what you want. But 
at the end of the day, we, we I had somebody do a video interview with me on, on this, and they asked me, well, what's your end goal? Because obviously, people want to hear that my end goal is to become a millionaire off this great idea that I had, right? But and, the thing is, you're walking away. You you your plan if this works is to walk away from a bunch of shit where you are making good money. Yeah, correct. And and so my end goal that I told him was that I want my two daughters one day to have eight to ten million acres of land that I was never able to access, that they're now able to access, and I want Steve's son one day to tell the world that his dad helped put all this new acreage in there. And I want Bill from Michigan's son to say, yeah, my dad was a part of a deal one day, you know, back in the day, and they got us all this new... Because that's what it is. It's communal. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Your $3 is worth just as much as my $3. None of us have a more important role in how we do this. It's going to take the entire community to make it work properly. And so everybody gets the proverbial pat on the back. Yeah. You know, and so I think that's a... um, if 30 years from now this worked and nobody had a clue who I was, I wouldn't care because it's, I, well, what do I care to say, hey, Matt, you know what I did back then? I don't, I don't you care. Don't care. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the I same just, way I don't care when I when I don't have any impact, I don't care. Yeah, I want to go apply for that tag because I want to get the hunt, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like That's what it's about, yeah. you know? So um, hopefully it works out. And but it, I, the thing that's just endearing to me about it, Skylar, is that you, it's, it's based on a belief that people care about other people. Right. That's the tough part. That's the that's that's the tough part that we struggle Man, with. Man, but it's almost like you gotta if, if they don't, it's done any it's done. Right. So, so yeah. that was when my dad asked me why in the hell I was trying to tackle this. And, and started bringing up because everybody wants to know like who gets more who gets to hunt who, I'm like hey it's an even playing field no matter what you do mm-hmm. it's an even playing field here's here's the bottom line and this is why it's so simple for me is that everybody can go on podcasts and talk everybody can write articles about their opinion we have a plethora of information of what you should do while you're hunting what you shouldn't do all this great knowledge is out there And you can take bits and pieces of that and do with it what you want, and everybody becomes a a genius in their own field. This plan says, you said this is the problem. Either put up or shut up about it. That's all there is to it. It's simple. You want this? Take $3 out of your pocket. Put it here every month. It's $36 a year. You spent more than that yesterday when you went to the grocery store. Put it right here, and we'll make this happen. If not... Don't stop don't saying that this is the problem because it's, it doesn't mean enough to you to actually do something about yeah, it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on board. I'll, I'll start saying that for you. Yeah, I mean, I'm I like, think that's I, I, every. I, I'm going to try to make an effort to do that, man. I, I will. I will try to make an effort. Like every time I hear somebody talk about, oh, they can't, they don't have any access anymore. It's getting tough. It's crowded. I'll just say, well, have you? Yeah, are you a member of Four Project? Yeah. Yeah. Do something about it. <laughs> that's that's kind of my and I that's how I explained it to my dad. I said because my dad's a big fisherman, and I told him I said, Dad, if every day you went to put your boat in the water, you had to air up your trailer tire. How long would you go before you just went crap? I'm gonna go buy a new trailer tire. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's here's my problem. 
instead of doing this every day and complaining about it, I'm just going to go down, put a new tire on it, and I'm done with it. Yeah. I got what I need. You know, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, this is that's it's that cut and dry. Yeah. You know? um, which that's a huge problem in our industry, anyways, is that we. We try to circumvent the problem to come up with all these grandiose ideologies of how it should be done. Yeah. And you come back to the same point of going, yeah, the old straight line would have been a lot better, <laughs> a lot better choice. But it save a lot of time and money, you know. It's, it's really true. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's hard to find a place to hunt. Well, let's buy some places yeah. to hunt. Yeah. Well, in your world, it'd be like, you know, having the grass out there and being like, this isn't working, this isn't working. Why are these cows and you just going, they don't like that grass. <laughs> you know what I mean? like, they don't eat that stuff. Here's what they eat. Put it right there. Look, problem solved. You know? All right. I think we should wrap it up. This has uh, been a fascinating conversation. Um, I really enjoyed having, I, I'm so grateful that you made the trip. And uh, we got my friend Miles coming over here to pick us up in a few minutes. And we're going to go. See if we can catch us some fish. Heck yeah, man. All right.